We're going to start out this morning by reading you guys a story that I read um, on BillyGraham.org called God Delivered Me, One Soldier's Story by Kelly Van Gilder. And I'm going to share that with you guys right now. Kathy Simonini couldn't help but weep during prayer on Wednesday at the Decision America tour stop in Rhode Island. That's because she knows the power of sincerely seeking a holy God. She has been in the darkness. She has walked down some dangerous roads. And not a day goes by that she doesn't thank God that he saved her. Her past is littered with tales of heartbreak. She has been abused as a child. She chose a homosexual lifestyle growing up. She was given bad information by someone she trusted. And on this day in Rhode Island, she recounted how he told her, God planted the seed of homosexuality and you let it grow. She received this advice roughly 10 years ago, just as her Army National Guard unit was preparing to deploy to Iraq. Kathy believed in Christ at the time, but she didn't have a personal relationship with him. She didn't know him as her Lord and Savior. She, <clears throat> excuse me, that need started to become clearer in Iraq, where she almost died in a Humvee accident. God spared me, Kathy said, explaining that if she'd been in her regular post as an M60 gunner, she most certainly would have died after being thrown from the vehicle. That day after a fellow soldier had asked to trade spots with her, he was a much larger person, and she believes that that's why they both survived the incident. Upon returning stateside, Kathy struggled to find peace with God during ongoing homosexual relationships. A particularly bad one left her on her knees begging God to show her the way. She repented and immediately started following God. When I had enough, she said, he became enough. He delivered me. Now Kathy volunteers as a chaplain with a local organization in Foxborough, Massachusetts. She's taking international chaplaincy courses, and she especially loves ministering to young adults who are confused by the lies of homosexuality. The young generation who's into this, I'm telling them, don't go down the road I went down. God's using my testimony to open their eyes, and I'm using it. I tell them, He's real. He exists. He loves you. Don't fall for the lies of the enemy. What are those lies? She specifically points to two things. That God would make someone homosexual. Or that if you're a person, or a good person, you'll get to see heaven. Neither account adds up biblically. In Genesis, she points out, it states that God made man and woman... Jesus also said man would leave his mother and father and be joined with his wife, a woman. It doesn't say anything about man and man, woman and woman, Kathy said. I tell them, God didn't make you this way. The enemy is feeding you lies, and you're watching society, which is convincing you in your mind. Block out the world and go to him. Standing on the state house grounds in Rhode Island, Kathy said, she thanks God for all the heartbreak and confusion she endured during her life. I thank God I went through what I went through because 
I can use it for my ministry today. I can say, look, I've been there. I've done that. Listen to me. I can tell you it works. It didn't happen overnight, but as I got to know my Lord and Savior, the homosexual lifestyle makes me sick to my stomach, to be quite honest, Kathy added. If he can change me, he can change others. Was it easy at first? No. Because you must break away from your old life, your old friends. But God is good. This is an amazing story about a woman who understood that there is a God, but did not understand at first that God's truth is actually available to those who wish to find it, and that that truth is ultimate. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. She, like so many people, acknowledged God's existence, but apply their own feelings or the feelings that were developed through outside influences into their own belief system, ultimately demonstrating a, a sort of selfishness, a subjective truth, or better, a rebellion against God's truth. The example in this story was a woman who believed that God had made her something that she was not. When a person chooses to believe something or someone, including themselves, that is contrary to what God has declared, and they act on it, they are demonstrating disobedience. When people put their faith and their trust into what God has said, into God's truth, that's called objective truth, meaning that is separate from individual subjectivity, and they act on that, they are demonstrating obedience. According to the Bible, there are blessings associated with obedience, and there are curses associated with disobedience. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then after that, there is this listing of blessings, things like blessed in the city, blessed in the country, etc. Essentially connecting obedience to God to good things. But on the other side of the coin in Deuteronomy 28, 15, the Bible says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then after that, there is a listing of curses, such as being cursed in the city, cursed in the country, etc., essentially connecting disobedience to God to bad things. Most people are familiar with the circumstances of the Israelites some 3,500 years ago. They had been, been delivered from Egyptian bondage by Moses, and they were promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. But they began to doubt God. Essentially, they believed that they were unable to do something that God said that they needed to do. 
And that was to oust the folks that were occupying the promised land. And just like in the soldier's story, the Israelites chose to believe something that was not true, according to God. And as stated before, their disobedience produced consequences. And in this case, it cost the Israelites immensely. Not only did they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, but ultimately those that treated God with contempt were denied entry into the promised land. They were condemned to die in the wilderness. And as the second part of Numbers 14.34 says, to these unfaithful Israelites, you, talking about the Israelites, shall know my rejection, said God. In addition to this group of Israelites, we also know that their leader, Moses himself, had disobeyed a direct command from God and was ultimately denied entry into the promised land. Numbers 20, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. To hallow something means to simply make it holy. You see, if God says something, it becomes truth. And if you disagree, you are essentially making the claim that God is wrong. And if God is wrong, then he is not holy or set apart, which we know is not true. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. God is perfect, and does not make mistakes. And any opposition to the truth has consequences, regardless of how we feel about it. For example, God says in Exodus 20:13, "You shall not murder." Therefore, if you think it's okay to murder someone, including unborn babies, you are wrong. And there are consequences. Leviticus 24, 17 says, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. God says in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Therefore, if you think you were born incorrectly, if you think you should have been born a yellow fire truck, you are wrong. And there are consequences. Those who do not believe God the Bible says, we'll be condemned. But here's the thing. God is good. And for those who are faithful and hallow his name, his promises will not go unfulfilled. See, he made a promise to the Israelite people that they would inherit the promised land. And after the death of Moses, that promise came true. After the consequences had been paid, the 40 years of wandering and the death of the disobedient generation, God delivered the Israelites to the promised land through a newly appointed leader named Joshua. Open your Bibles up to the book of Joshua if you want, and I want to give you a general overview of the first few chapters of this book, and then we're going to look at a couple of specific areas within the specific sections. Chapter 1 of the book of Joshua, starts out with God promoting Joshua to lead the army of Israel after Moses died. 
God commanded Joshua to take the children of Israel to the promised land, which lay beyond the Jordan River. God not only commanded Joshua to do this, but he tells him to be strong. He tells him to be courageous and to study and to live by the law. And by doing all of this, by being obedient, God promises Joshua prosperity and success. Joshua begins this campaign by ordering his officers to communicate to the camp that they needed to get prepared with provisions because they were going to the Jordan River in three days. He explained to the people that the men of valor will cross first and secure that promised land and that the wives and children and the livestock will remain on the safe side of the Jordan until the land had been secured. And all the people and soldiers agreed and they swore loyalty to Joshua's command saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Joshua 1.16. Joshua, being a strategic leader, he sent a couple of spies into the city of Jericho, which was across the Jordan. You might recall the story of Rahab the harlot who hid these spies while they lodged with her in Jericho. Turns out the king of Jericho was looking for them after learning that they had come to search out the country and gather intelligence for Joshua. But Rahab hid the men on the roof out of fear because she was aware of what had happened when God parted the Red Sea and delivered them out of Egypt. They destroyed the kings of the Amorites. She pleaded with these spies to spare her and her family when they came to take this land. And the spies agreed to the deal, giving her some directions to tie a line of scarlet cord in her window and to make sure her family was inside her house during the raid and they would not be harmed. The red color associated with the cord in the window was God's pledge of safety. And so the soldiers knew that they were not to enter that dwelling or to kill the inhabitants during the battle. Three days later, after hiding in the mountains from some pursuers, the two spies returned to Joshua and explained all that they had encountered. Joshua 2:24 says, And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So after receiving that information, Joshua moves everyone to the banks of the Jordan River. They set up camp for three days. The officers command the people to move out when they saw the Ark of the Covenant and those that were carrying it, the priests. They explained that there needed to be some space between them and the Ark, some 2,000 cubits, maybe a half mile or a mile, and not to come near it. The ark was going to go before the people. And God told Joshua to have the priest stand in the river and he would make a way. And that is exactly what happened. As soon as the priest's feet touched the river, the waters which came from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away, the text says. And the people of Israel were able to cross over on the dry ground. As they were crossing God told Joshua to have 12 men, one from each tribe, take stones out of the riverbed and build a memorial for the future generations that would remind them of how God had delivered them. Once everyone had crossed and Joshua was done giving instructions, the priests came up from the Jordan, and as soon as they were on dry land, the waters from the Jordan returned to their place, and a little while later, the group settled in Gilgal, also called a place of memorial, on the east border of Jericho. The memorial stones were stacked as commanded. 
Once the group was in Gilgal, they stayed there for some time as they had to get everyone who was born in the wilderness during the 40 years of Moses circumcised. So they are getting everything ready for war. They're no longer eating manna pancakes. Instead, they're living on the land, they're eating what was grown, and they're healing from their surgical procedures. Next, there is this event that takes place where the commander of the army of the Lord is introduced. Joshua, who was near Jericho, sees a man standing next to him holding a sword. And after introducing himself as the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua falls down and and he worships him and he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the man tells Joshua to take his shoes off because he is standing on holy ground. At this point, the city of Jericho is on high alert. They're locked down. They're not letting people in or out in anticipation of an attack. And the Lord gave Joshua some instructions to march the army, the priests who were holding horns in the ark around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times. And they did just that. Each of the six days, they marched around And the priests blew their trumpets. And on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. And Joshua gave the men the command to shout. And as they did, the walls of Jericho came crashing down. The army entered the city and they killed pretty much everybody in there except Rahab, the harlot, and those that were in her house. Joshua allowed them to live as promised and secured all the riches of the city, but pretty much destroyed everything else. This is a very interesting story These people did exactly what God told them to do, at least up until this point. And after doing what God told them to do, they prevailed in a way that appears to be miraculous. I mean, the question is, if you were in Joshua's shoes, would you have done it exactly like that? Or would you have incorporated your own ideas into the various situations that you had to face? I think if we're all honest with ourselves in general, as Christians, we tend to lean on God being more forgiving than just. When we choose to be disobedient, I think we tend to explain it away by saying things like, well, I don't think God is going to get that mad at me for this little thing. Or I'll just ask for forgiveness later, but for now, I just want to do what I want. Or when we say, I know this is wrong, and then do it anyway. Or worse, when we try to use scripture to justify it. Well, Jesus turned water into wine, so bottoms up. Or I know, I know I'm a sinner and I do horrible things. It's it's good Jesus died for me, so I can just keep doing what I want to do. I think by and large we forget to hallow the Lord or treat him with the reverence he's entitled to as God. Remember, Matthew told us in chapter 6 that when we pray, we should say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our God is a holy God. And as we recall the story of Joshua, we see that when he is treated as such, miracles happen. Blessings happen. The consequence of Moses losing his entry into the promised land makes it very clear that God, while loving and forgiving, will hold his people accountable. And as we read regarding Joshua, obedience produces a much better outcome, which is blessings from God. 
So let's look at this story in just a couple of ways. First, let's look at four situations in this story of Joshua that we talked about. And second, we're going to identify some important truths contained in this story. And then three, let's see if we can apply these truths to our lives as we work to strengthen our faith in God. The first situation is right before Joshua and his group crossed the Jordan River. Joshua chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 3 and verse 4. And they, this is Joshua's officers, commanded the people saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you, should, you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. It's important to understand that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was this golden trunk or a chest that represented a covenant made by God to the Israelites, essentially promising prosperity to them if they obey him. The lid was called the mercy seat, which in Hebrew means to appease or to cleanse, to make atonement. Essentially, there would be blood sprinkled on this mercy seat to appease God's wrath for past sins. One commentator stated that the mercy seat on the ark was a symbolic foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice for all sin, the blood of Christ shed on the cross for the remission of sins. So this ark was the only place to have their sins forgiven. So this was very important and, uh, and a sacred act, um, artifact. And so when the people are told to follow this ark, they are essentially following their only means of redemption. It represented the presence of God. And notice that they're told to keep a distance because they had never gone this way before. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan River. They have no idea how that's going to happen. They're essentially told to trust that God will make a way and follow his lead. And they did just that. They believed God would make a way. And he did. The second situation is during the crossing of the Jordan River. Joshua 3, 14 through 17. Joshua 3, verses 14 through 17. So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zertan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Now, this is truly amazing. This religious procession of Israelites had been faithfully following the Ark of the Covenant for several miles at about a half mile behind or more when this miracle event takes place for all of them to see. The priests step into the water 
And the waters which came down from upstream stood and rose in a heap very far away, it says. And the waters that went downstream were cut off and failed. Essentially, the water coming from downstream stopped as though it had hit a wall and rose in a heap right before their eyes. A heap is defined as a disorderly collection of objects placed haphazardly on the top of each other. Like stacking a bunch of cardboard boxes on top of each other. They don't seem stable. This heap of water would have probably looked just like that. Tons of water flowing upstream in front of them, splashing everywhere. Just suddenly moving straight up. And can you imagine the sound it would have made from even a half mile back, rumbling? It would have been something to see. And then notice the priests and the Israelites crossed on dry ground. My logic would have assumed there would have been tons of mud and muck to walk through. But God parted the water of the Jordan, leaving no water at all. And all the procession crossed on completely dry ground. God's way across the Jordan was more than sufficient. It was ideal. The third situation is right after Joshua and the group crossed the Jordan River. Joshua 4, verses 4 and 7. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel. One man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever." So remember, they crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. There are a group of priests holding the ark, standing in the middle of what used to be the Jordan River on completely dry land. And Joshua tells 12 leaders of the 12 tribes to each take a river rock or a boulder from the riverbed in order to construct this memorial on the other side so future generations would not forget what has just happened that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It's very interesting when you think about it because to regular people, this would have just been a big pile of rocks, completely meaningless. However, to the Israelites, it would become the stones of remembrance, a small structure that would enable future generations to remember that the mighty God they are obedient to has and will act on their behalf in mighty ways as demonstrated at the Jordan River that day. If you ever want to see a 12-stone memorial, there is one called the 12 Stones, a reminder to future generations that was constructed on July 5th, 2016 at the base of the life-size Noah's Ark located at the Ark Encounter in Williamston, Kentucky. The inscription reads, and I quote, These stones signify that it was built to remind future generations and the whole world of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. I hope to get to see it someday myself. But the final situation I want to look at 
is just before Joshua and the Israelites capture the city of Jericho. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. This is another very interesting passage because it seems as though this person just appeared out of thin air because the verse stated that Joshua lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. This would have been a little bit of a shock, I think, which is why Joshua probably jumped right to it. Are you for us or against us? Probably he was caught off guard. One commentator wrote that a man is what Joshua thought he was seeing, but subsequent events revealed that it was not an ordinary man. The man's drawn sword was symbolic of God's participation in the coming battle. In verse 14, the person stated he was the commander of the army of the Lord. And while it is not entirely clear who this man was, it is believed he was an angelic host who assured victory to Israel if they were obedient. Similar perhaps to the angels of God that met Jacob in Genesis 32 one and two. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. I think it's fair to assume the same thing here that Joshua and the Israelites had just entered God's camp. Because notice in verse 15 that the angelic commander told Joshua to take his sandals off because the place where he stood was holy. And Joshua did so. Any place that God reveals himself is holy. Such as when Moses encountered the Lord in the flame of fire known as the burning bush. And God told Moses to take his sandals off there too. In Exodus 3, 5. Then he, God said, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. When God makes promises, he keeps it. And while there's no account of this commander of the Lord's army doing any fighting in Jericho, the battle was won swiftly and miraculously as the walls of Jericho came crashing down by the yelling of men, which doesn't, in my opinion, seem powerful enough on its own to happen. It was clearly miraculous. Let's look at four principles related to these situations. The first principle is that we must trust that God will make a way. Imagine being one of the Israelites following the crowd toward an overflowing river that could have easily been hundreds of feet wide and thinking to yourself, what are we supposed to do? Swim across the river? Come on, Joshua, this is crazy. It's easy sometimes to put our own limitations on situations because that's what we do. But there are no limitations as it relates to God. When he says he's going to provide a way, then he's going to provide a way. Just as he did for Joshua and the Israelites. 
just as he did for you and me by sending his son Jesus to save us. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We must trust that God will make a way, and we must follow his lead. The second principle is that God's way is more than sufficient. Imagine being one of the Israelites. You see the river part and the heap of water gathering on the far side of the river. And while amazed, you might think, yeah, I guess we can cross here, but it's probably going to be rough and muddy and dirty. And we're going to slip and slide as we walk across. Maybe we should build a bridge. But remember what happened when God made a way. The ground was completely dry, the Bible says. And it was not only sufficient for crossing, there was nothing any of them could have done to make it better. It was literally the only and best way. As Christians, we have been provided with the only way to salvation. And that way is not only sufficient for crossing into eternity, but there is also nothing any of us can do to make it better. It is literally the only way. Romans chapter 6, verse 9 through 10 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. God's way for us to be saved is through his son, Jesus. And his way provides for us complete forgiveness of sin and eternal life with him in heaven. And the third principle is that we need to remember what God has done. Imagine being one of the, the uh, grandchildren of the Israelites that crossed the Jordan and asking some older people why those rocks are stacked up like that. Seems kind of weird. And then hearing about how your grandparents had to walk across the big river to get to school. It's kind of a limb, Joe. No, can, can you imagine looking in their tear-filled eyes of the generation as they reflect on how God saved them? How God, being a loving and amazing God, parted the river and delivered them into the promised land. Remember what, remembering what God has done for us is not only important for us as we walk through a troubled world, but it's also important as it relates to us being able to share with others what God has done for us, such as the, the soldier from the opening story is doing as she courageously shares her, her, her failed lifestyle choices that were utterly wrong and produced horrible consequences her. But more importantly, she is sharing how God delivered her from that and saved her. Psalm 119, 55. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. We have to remember what he's done all the time. And fourth, the fourth principle is that when we are obedient to God, He's going to support us. Imagine being Joshua preparing for a battle. 
And as you're making plans, you encounter an angel who lets you know that he is there as the commander of the Lord's army. I mean, what a feeling of awe he must have felt to not only have the personal experience, the, the necessary resources, a committed and dedicated army to achieve this mission, but to have the reassurance that God is going to ensure your victory. What a feeling he must have had. It's like when we as Christians think about going to heaven. We don't wonder if we're going to go to heaven. We don't speculate that we might get in. We know that we know we are going to heaven because God has provided us with all the support we need, such as his word, the Holy Bible, which assures us as believers, those who have Jesus have life. John 6, 47, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So what exactly is this telling us? That God has a plan and knows the way? That we should trust in his plan and know that it is sufficient for our lives? And that as we make progress as Christians, we should remember all that he has done for us and all that we are, and that while we are doing all of this, we are not alone. And that we get to go to heaven. And who knows? Maybe when we're having hard times, there is an angel waiting right there to help you just when you need it. He's done it before. I just want to give you a couple of easy-to-remember ways to apply some of this to our lives. Number one, if you are not a Christian, if you do not know God's way to salvation, you can have salvation by becoming or by getting into a relationship with Jesus, by accepting him as your Lord and Savior. You can reach out to Pastor Larry at any time, or myself, and we will schedule a time to share the gospel with you. You can know the love of Jesus in your life, if you don't already. If you are a Christian, and you're struggling with situations that seem difficult to overcome, I encourage you to reflect on God's promises, and to always remember that he knows how to cross rivers. If you're struggling with not feeling like a good Christian, then set aside some time and pray that God would reveal to you just how sufficient his way is. And remember that when he makes a way, it will be more than ideal. And if you feel overwhelmed with the day-to-day -day struggles of your life, remember that God will send help when it's needed. It could be as simple as reading your Bible. It could be as simple as a Christian brother or sister who's here right now that can come beside you and help you. Or it might be something altogether more powerful. I read this one story by a guy named James Brown, not the singer, um, called There Is No Situation I Can Get Into That God Cannot Get Me Out Of. Some years ago, he writes, when I was learning to fly, my instructor told me to put the plane into a steep and extended dive. 
I was totally unprepared for what was about to happen. After a brief time, the engine stalled and the plane began to plunge out of control. It soon became evident that the instructor was not going to help me at all. After a few seconds, which seemed like an eternity, my mind began to function again, and I quickly corrected the situation. Immediately, I turned to the instructor and began to vent my fearful frustrations on him. He very calmly said to me, there is no position you can get this plane into that I cannot get you out of. If you want to learn to fly, go up there and do it again. At that moment, God seemed to be saying to me, remember this, as you serve me, there is no situation you can get yourself into that I cannot get you out of. If you trust me, you will be all right. If we trust God, we will be all right. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all your goodness and kindness. You are an amazing, amazing God, and you have given us all of the necessary tools to navigate this chaotic world. You have given us so many blessings. I pray, Father, that as we all reflect on the story of Joshua today, Lord, that you would inspire and instill in us that we would trust you, that we would understand that the miracles that you performed in the past were real, that you can part rivers, that you are in control. Lord, as we face crazy times in this world, we get hung up sometimes on who's in power, who's doing this, what's happening, that you know, everything's going to come to an end. Father, I pray that you would give, put stillness in our hearts and remind us that you know the way. And I pray, Father, that each of us would reflect on that throughout this week and throughout our lives. Help us to trust you. Help us to put you first in our life. Help us to follow you across the rivers. In Jesus' name, amen.